0: Welcome to Citadel Square. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, as A.J. said, Christmification is upon us uh, here. We're, we're beginning the um, really the Advent season, and we began this book two weeks ago in the book of Luke, and we're right in the middle of it here as uh, as we look at the preparation uh, of both the John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. So if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn to Luke chapter 1 with me. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 26 through uh, 38. This story is uh, at the same time uh, completely unique, unprecedented, and yet completely familiar. Uh, This is a story that if you have not been a church attender, if you have zero church background... You have probably heard the story or seen the nativity scenes on the front yards of people throughout our city. Looking at the Virgin Mary and the story of Mary and her encounter with Gabriel the angel. Uh, This text really provides both the contrast and the complement to what we looked at last week. Last week we looked at the story of Zechariah. And Elizabeth, and in many ways, this is the complete opposite of that story in a variety of ways. The place is opposite of where you would expect, the people are opposite of what you expect, whereas in Zechariah and Elizabeth's story, they are very old and advanced in years. You have uh, Mary being a teenager here. She's not in the, in the central place of the nation where Zechariah and Elizabeth were in their worship. Where Zechariah and Elizabeth were preparing and praying, uh, Mary is doing virtually nothing. She's interrupted uh, by an angel who arrives on the scene to give her perhaps the most unprecedented and unrepeatable greatest miracle of your entire Bible. That's what this text is about. So you wonder when you get ready to teach a text like this, you know, if any Christian has ever told you, like, I understand the incarnation and I could teach it, they're lying. Uh, don't don't believe them you read it for yourself these are the texts in the scriptures when you come to them you go well how do I apply the incarnation and the Virgin Mary I'm not a virgin I'm not a young lady Uh, I'm not in my engagement period Uh, this is something that is unrepeatable never happens again Uh, I don't know what to do with this, and uh, even as I think about God becoming man, I get a headache, so how in the world do I apply a text like this uh, to our life? So what I'm going to try to do is really just preach the text as it lies, uh, declare a lot of things about what God does in a passage like this, because in many ways, we are stepping into the hallowed ground of what God does to accomplish something for us in the gospel. If you don't have the virgin birth, you don't have a gospel, If you don't have this moment right here, if you've heard of the term irreducible complexity, you know what that term means? That means uh, if you ever think, look at a mousetrap, irreducible complexity has to do with the essential parts that make a mousetrap work. A mousetrap is irreducibly complex. You can't take away any part and the mousetrap work. When you come to the gospel message, what we need is some individual who is both simultaneously God and man who can take the wrath of God on the cross for our sin and not be obliterated and at the same time identify with us who are humans in every single way in which we are. So in that... In this moment, we're going to step back and we're going to look at it and go look at the miracle that God does to bring the second person of the Trinity into creation. All right? That's enough intro. Let's pray and do it. Father, we uh, pray for a moment that as our hearts are prepared for Thanksgiving and the week to come, as our hearts are now preparing for the Advent season, we would pray that uh, for these few minutes as we look into your word that you might show us things about yourself and remind us of some things about yourself that maybe we haven't considered before, that maybe we've forgotten or that haven't been on the forefront of our mind. Would we as a people stand enraptured by this text? Would you show us the beauty and the wonder of the incarnation that displays your grace and your goodness and your initiative toward us in sending your son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So Father, we pause and ask for your grace that the spirit would cause this text to come alive in our hearts and that we would turn once again in worship and adoration of who you are and what you've done in the person and work of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. All right, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Y'all there? Gosh, my nose is itchy. Is it fall yet? Does anybody know? I mean, it's like 30 degree. I wish it was fall. This is like fall. Somebody sent me a text. This, this has nothing to do with the sermon. Somebody sent me a text two weeks ago. and was like, hey, we're in false fall. Because then it's like, you know, it's going to be 80 this week. And then the mosquitoes are back. I, I don't, who cares? Doesn't matter. That's my rant. Take that out of the sermon, Kenny. That has nothing to do with God's word. Luke chapter 1. Y'all there? Chapter 1, verse 26, in the sixth month. Now, if you were with us last week, we said that the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promises, of 400 years of God's promises waiting from Malachi 4, chapter 6, have fallen now and been fulfilled in the conception of John the Baptist in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. And we ended last week saying that the marker of God taking away Elizabeth's reproach, of God meeting and answering the prayers of Zechariah started the clock. It started a different kind of time framework for us which now controls our future narrative. So as we move into the story of Mary, we know in the back of our mind that the clock is ticking and John the Baptist is starting to elbow his mom's tummy and starting to kick and flutter and the signs of life in Elizabeth's womb are being seen and experienced by Zechariah. And what happens here as this angel is sent, this angel is sent to a completely different place. It's a place you probably wouldn't expect, a place that you need particular definition of to know even where Gabriel goes. Look at what it says here in 26. The sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Whereas the encounter with Gabriel and Zechariah happened in the temple, which is in Jerusalem, where we're taken, as we zoom out on the geography of Judea and then into greater Israel, we're taken about 75 to 100 miles north to a place that Matthew calls Galilee of the Gentiles. It's not necessarily a very populated Jewish place. It's a more significantly populated Gentile place. And as such, when Luke writes this story to us, he wants you to know where Nazareth is because Nazareth is probably a village of no more than a couple hundred people at this time. It's not a significant place, whereas we began in Judea under the reign of Herod the king in the holy place where the tabernacle was and the curtains were and the priesthood was. We leave all of that and we come to a place that is predominantly inhabited by Gentiles where the Jewish practices of the day may be well-known culturally, but we aren't in the priesthood. We're not in the religious rituals. We're not in the customs of those who have sought God and prayed to God and been face-to-face with God in their worship practices where we're taken is to a little bitty place with very little reputation in this day and time. If you know the story over in the book of John of Philip and Nathaniel, Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, hey, we have found the Christ. We have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And it's like the whole narrative stops. And Nathaniel goes, what? Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's not a great place to, to come from. You don't put that on your resume. That's not a popular part of our country. It's an embarrassing place. So right from the beginning, when we are introduced through Luke's disciplined narrative and the particularities of a place that he gave us in Zechariah and Elizabeth, immediately we see the contrast. This is a far different place with far different practices, with far different people. There aren't a lot of people around. This is a singular meeting between Gabriel and this young lady. Look at verse 27. Gabriel shows up in Nazareth to a virgin. Now, while we were introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, we were introduced to them as a couple who was historically barren and both barren and advanced in years where Luke in his recording here of the story with Mary introduces us to something that's very particular, just like he did something very particular about Elizabeth. Only this is not a problem, this is a declaration of, your, of her purity. So here comes Gabriel to a particular time, to a particular person, in a particular place, and we're told right away that this is a particularly pure individual. She's betrothed. Now betrothal, if you don't know what that is, betrothal is an ancient Jewish custom where young ladies were promised. The dowry was given, the promises were executed, the vows were made, and they entered into about a year-long process called betrothal. It was a more binding form of engagement that exists in our own culture. If the young lady's husband dies at this time during the uh, period of betrothal, she's considered a widow. But during this time of betrothal, the husband and the wife live apart, and the husband prepares for the marriage ceremony that happens at the end of a year, where the marriage is then consummated and the marriage continues in that following year. He brings her to live in his house and then the marriage is consummated and goes forward. So we're introduced right in the beginning to know that Mary, this individual that we'll be introduced to in a second here, is both a virgin and is in the betrothal period. Her betrothed is a man named Joseph. Now, if you remember, with Zechariah and Elizabeth, we're introduced to something very particular about their background. You remember that? Just look back up in the chapter, in chapter 1, and you'll discover that Zechariah is of the division of Abijah. He has a priestly heritage, and Elizabeth is from the daughters of Aaron. She also has a priestly heritage. So whereas we began Zechariah and Elizabeth's story with the images of The priestly heritage going back to the great high priest of Israel's history were introduced to some other great hero of Israel's history here as Joseph is from the house of David. So if we began with Zechariah and Elizabeth in chapter 1 talking about the priesthood, what are we talking about here? We're talking about a king, aren't we? So we have two big ideas that are controlling Luke's narrative. One is the priesthood and the historical heritage or the heritage that comes from the priesthood through Zechariah and through Elizabeth. And now who gets brought onto the scene is David the king, the greatest ancient historical king of Israel. One more thing, the virgin's name is Mary. So there's your introduction to this couple, Joseph and Mary. Joseph's heritage is a kingly heritage that goes back into uh, David's line, Mary is a virgin. They're in the betrothal period. Now, we've got, we're kind of a younger church. A lot of times in our church throughout the past several years, we've had lots of weddings. Anybody get married recently? Raise your hand. Hampton, I see you. I just met Hampton. We shook hands this morning. Three weeks married. boy. Uh, you know, if you've ever been to a wedding, heard of a wedding, Uh, planned a wedding Uh, Suzanne and I typically do premarital counseling with couples leading up to the wedding and I would say that during the premarital period during the wedding planning period there is no greater pressure no greater level of anticipation and expectation associated with a coming wedding ladies amen You know how many flowers you planned and discussions you've had and caterers you've talked to and I want to make sure the DJ plays my favorite song and all of that conversation and preparation of bridesmaids and planning and talking to mom and getting the venue and who's the church and who's the pastor and who's the the ceremony, how the flowers and how, are you with me? No? (laughs) I mean, I thought this illustration would just, would slay right now. Are you with me? All right. You know what it's like to prepare for a wedding. So if nothing else, we know this woman and this man have their future ahead of them. And it's filled with plans. It's filled with anticipation. It's filled with what is going to be. Verse 28. And he came to her. You know what's interesting? The Greek here. Uh, implies that this meeting happens inside it happens in it's an individual encounter that who arrives into Mary's life comes with no knock comes with no nice to meet you comes with Gabriel interrupting her life and he came to her and said greetings Oh, favored one. Now, remember how, how did Gabriel meet Zechariah? Remember the first thing Gabriel said to Zechariah? Your prayer has been heard. So, as far as we can tell, Mary's not praying. Mary's not asking. Mary's not inviting. Mary's not considering anything that has to do with who God is or what he is like or what the angels are doing, anything at all. She's basically in the midst of life. She's in the midst of life going, and planning and thinking about her future and what is ahead and this betrothal and her man Joseph, and what God is going to do, and she's just going about the normal rhythms of life, and Gabriel encounters her, greets her, and says, "Oh favored one, greetings. The Lord is with you." Now one, you, you have to wonder when Gabriel encounters her is to announce the grace of God upon her life. He essentially interrupts her life, reminding her of something that she may not have been considering. She may not even know where she stands with God, but the interruption that Gabriel gives her reminds her of God's gracious outlook and initiative toward her. You are favored by God. God's grace is upon you. And then he says something that uh, if you have a cross reference in your Bible would point to a spot in Judges. Do you have that? You have a spot in your Bible that points to Judges 6. You know what Judges 6 is? You don't need to turn there. Judges 6 is the story of Gideon. Gideon is a farmer. He's threshing out the wheat in a wine press, which means he's in a hidden secret place trying to keep the threshings of the uh, harvest secret from raiders. And he encounters the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord arrives and shows up and says, the grace, he essentially says something... um, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. That Gideon's life is interrupted. And the reason you have that cross-reference there is for us to consider what is happening in Gideon's life. Gideon is weak. Gideon is unable. Gideon is not popular. Gideon is not a warrior. Gideon is not significant whatsoever in the life of the nation. But when the angel of the Lord shows up in Gideon's life and says, the Lord is with you, it's the angel's way of saying that I am about to provide every amount of divine spiritual resources and power that you need for what you're about to do. When David gets ready to build the temple in the Old Testament, one of the things that Samuel says to him before he builds the temple is he says, the Lord is with you. Go and do all that is in your heart. And then God interrupts him and says, you don't get to build the temple because you're a man of war. But the, the image is the same idea. You have all of the resources that you are going to need for this future event in your life. You with me so far? Verse... Twenty-nine, But she was greatly troubled at the saying. Who's that remind you of? Reminds you of Zechariah, doesn't it? Only this is a more intensified version. She's greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. One of the things we learn about Mary from this text and two others that tell us When Mary sees and encounters both the supernatural and sees and encounters the response to Jesus, she often responds with treasuring up things that are in her heart. It says she treasures up all these things and ponders them. That Mary is an internal processor, even from a young age, even as a teenager, she thinks about stuff. She considers what is happening out here when the angel speaks to her. She considers when people encounter Jesus Christ and watch people respond in worship to Jesus and who he is. She treasures these things up. They become a part of her inner dialogue. So as this angel greets her, tells her she's favored, tells her she has all of the divine resources that she is going to need for what is about to come next, Mary goes, hmm, what's that mean? Why is this angel here? Why is this angel talking to me like this? What is happening in this encounter? And I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to discern and to ponder and to think about it. And the angel keeps going. Gabriel's a little bit of a blabbermouth in this text. He just keeps talking. He keeps sharing things. And Mary has to slow him down in a minute with a question. But he keeps sharing the things that now are going to be evidence of God's grace in her life. It's always important when God interrupts you to consider how God views the interruption. Amen? Because Mary's life, I think you would agree, this is the massive understatement. Her life is about to be completely interrupted. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So there it is. For the second time, we're told that Mary is the recipient of divine favor, of God's divine grace being upon her life. So let's ask a question, since we all agree that Mary's life is about to be divinely interrupted. How do you view interruptions? Do you like them? Do you welcome them as evidence of God's sovereignty and providential goodness in your life? When you are interrupted, do you try to discern what is happening, or do you, like me, get a little bit grumpy, get a little bit frustrated that my life and my plan is not operating on my timetable, that I can't find the parking spot that I need? I don't have the financial strength that I expected to have at this stage of life. My boss doesn't seem to understand the pressures that I am under. My family and my marriage isn't working according to my own expectations. Anybody else? But this interruption is interesting because of how Gabriel greets Mary. He tells her something about herself that maybe she hasn't considered before, but that she is the recipient of God's divine blessing, God's divine grace, God's divine blessing and initiative to interrupt her life. Verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Now Zechariah, we said, made it all the way up to the most holy place right outside the curtain he was praying for something that he'd been praying for for decades he'd been asking God for something in that place because it was as close as he's ever going to get to get the answer to the prayer that he hopes that he could have and we're introducing the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth to know that her womb is barren God has closed it for a particular person for a particular sorry for a particular season for a particular purpose. But here, with Mary, she is alerted to the fact that she will conceive in her womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, what's interesting about Luke and his account here, you may have probably read in the book of Matthew how Gabriel encounters Mary there. And Gabriel in Matthew's account, adds something to explain the name of Jesus. Do you remember what it is? He says, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But Luke, in his account, doesn't have that aspect of what what Gabriel is saying, because Luke's emphasis is on a different aspect of this divine person. We're meant to see and learn something about Jesus in this passage that is slightly different from what we're meant to see in Matthew's account now watch let's look at the person and his position verse 32 we already know that his name is Jesus whose name means salvation verse 32 he will be great and will be called the son of the most high every time in the old testament when an individual is referred to or uh, God is referred to in the singular of this word great, it always refers to God alone. It's attributed to nobody else anywhere else in the Old Testament. When it talks about what is great and who is great, it's particularly connected to God. So while John would be great in the eyes of the Lord, this individual is going to be essentially great, which speaks to the next part of what Gabriel says in the message. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Anytime you see this phrase, you know the name Barnabas in the New Testament? Barnabas is, his name is often explained as Barnabas, son of encouragement. Which means Barnabas and who he is, is essentially an encourager. He shares the very essence of somebody who comes alongside. Well, here in this passage, we have Jesus described as both great and the son of the most high, which is our first indication that this individual who is about to be born, who's about to be incarnated into humanity, shares the very essence of God himself. When God is referred to the most high in the Old Testament, it's God in his ineffable glory. He is the highest of high. He is over all rule, all authority. There's nobody who opposes him whatsoever. And this individual shares the very essence of the most high. Look at the next part of the verse. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now we're, we're brought into the kingly, royal, monarchical language that's associated with Jesus. This individual, like Psalm 2, will be installed by God Himself. This individual will be given the right to rule and to reign by God Himself. And He will sit on the throne of His father David. Verse 33 And He will reign over the house of Jacob how long? forever and of his kingdom there will be no end now you probably have a cross reference here and I just want to look at it briefly but this is the fulfillment of what is called in your Old Testament the Davidic covenant it's a promise that God gives to David the king I already quoted for you the part where Nathan and David have a conversation about the building of God's house that David longs to fulfill and longs to build for God But just after that is 2 Samuel chapter 7. So keep your finger in Luke and turn back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is God's promise to David that is fulfilled right here in the words of Gabriel with the coming of Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel verse 7. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7 Starting in verse 12. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Now, this has a near fulfillment in who? Who's the son that's going to come from David who's going to build the temple? It's Solomon, right? But watch how the prophecy continues in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there's both a near fulfillment in the person of Solomon. But there's also somebody else coming who will come from the line of David. Who will be the fulfillment of the one who will sit on the throne. And will have a kingdom without end. You with me? Now come back to Luke. Now last week, we looked at Malachi 4. Malachi 4 talked about the forerunner, that there was a promise that somebody was going to come before the Lord and prepare his way. And we said that God waited 400 years. God waited decades of unanswered prayer to come to the very point when he would fulfill his promise from Malachi chapter 4 in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, when Gabriel shows up a second time, he shows us the fulfillment of not a 400-year-old prophecy, but a 1,000-year-old prophecy because David lives and walks about 1,000 B.C. So the question we have to consider, both with the coming of John and the coming of Jesus Christ, is has God forgotten his faithfulness to his word? What do you think? Has God been waiting to fulfill the promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7? Say yes. Yes, when is he fulfilling it? Right here in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, the kingdom that has no end. You don't need to turn here, but let me read you just two spots from Daniel that make this visible. When Daniel gets a message from Gabriel himself, Gabriel talks to Daniel about the coming kings and the rise and fall of kingdoms during Daniel's day when he's in captivity. So it's only reasonable to understand that when Gabriel arrives again and talks to Zechariah and Elizabeth about the fulfillment of John the Baptist who fulfills Malachi's prophecy. Now he arrives on the scene with Mary and he fulfills the kingdom prophecy of the king of David. Back in Daniel, here's what Gabriel and Daniel write about. Daniel 2.44 says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Well, that's the prophecy of Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. Here's what it says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, why is this here in Luke? Luke is written for the Gentile world. And when Luke writes this down and pens the story of Gabriel coming and reminding Mary that her betrothed husband is from the line of David and to remind him that God has not forgot his promises to bring the Messiah and the king through this line, it's as if God invades humanity, puts his, plants his flag on the earth and says, this is the king of all the world and he will reign on the throne of David it's a divine invasion statement that's why in Luke's account here you don't have a lot of Jesus is going to save him from their sins Jesus is going to go to the cross Jesus is going to be near to the brokenhearted all of that is true but here Jesus is going to rule. Jesus is going to reign. Jesus is going to be installed as God's king on God's holy hill, according to Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. We don't have time to low and look at that. But here's Gabriel making a kingly, majestic, royal announcement to a young teenage version. You couldn't get a greater contrast, could you? Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, commentators go back and forth on why is this? Why is Mary not struck dumb? And as best we can tell, Zechariah's question to the angel wanted to know the how, God would accomplish the what. And when Gabriel rebukes Zechariah, it says, you'll be silent because you did not believe the word that I have spoken. But Mary doesn't seem to be concerned with either belief or unbelief. Mary brings what we already know about her which is her virginity and her purity into this discussion and Joseph hasn't been mentioned at all for us as the reader except in introducing us to who he is. Gabriel doesn't mention him at all. He's not at all a part of this story other than he has a heritage of royalty that we know of. So Mary asks, now what do you think? Do you think it's possible to ask questions in faith and ask questions in unbelief? Yes. Yeah. So it really matters what's underneath the question, doesn't it? We'll learn more about Mary in just a second, but we've got to ask a question. Is There's no rebuke to Mary. While there's a rebuke to Zechariah, who ought to know better, Mary has arguably less of a prayer history. Mary has arguably less knowledge than one of the priesthood. Mary has less experience in her walking with God at this time. All she has is her current personal experience up to this point that has been interrupted by an angel who says, you are about to conceive. And she says, how will this be? Since literally the Greek says, I have not known a man. So there must be something about her listening to this story and her putting pieces together and listening to the promise of royalty to come through the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which she may or may not even know. She probably knows the name of David, but how that all works together, we don't know. And the angel says, verse 35, the angel, and this is, I mean, this is a verse that you kind of just read and step back and go, I don't know. How does this work? I don't know. How does God do it? I don't know. But it suffice to say that in this verse, you have the Trinity and Mary together to bring about the incarnation of the Son of God. Verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That word overshadow is a fascinating one. In, Je- in Exodus uh, 40, at the end of the building of the tabernacle, it says that the, gl- the Shekinah glory of God comes down upon the tabernacle and no one can enter, not even Moses. This word is used later on in the transfiguration in the book of Luke when Jesus begins to speak on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John and a cloud overshadows and it says the disciples are afraid. Because anytime a cloud descends, anytime a cloud shows up, it has to do with us not being able to peer into the mystery of the glory of what God is doing it's as if god shields us from being able to see the magic of redemption the wonder of the incarnation and gabriel tells him tells her the holy spirit will come upon you the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called holy the son of god you see all the trinity involved all together in one single verse to bring forth the christ All we know from this is that Jesus is going to have two distinct, united, in one person aspects. He will be fully God, and he will be fully man. You can't just have Jesus show up in the desert preaching. You know that? You have to have him participate in real humanity. There has to be conception, gestation, development, Birth to a real family in a real place Who's you know where he's from. You see what his dad does. Everybody knows who he is. They know his brothers. They know his sisters. He's got to be essentially human like us. He can't just be kind of human plus five and kind of just a little bit above us. He's got to be really like us. So this is not just here for us to see the mystery of how God becomes man, but it's it's to remind us that he is indeed God with us. He's like me. He sweats like me, breathes like me. He gets lactic acid like me. He knows what life is like in a sinful world like me. Why? Because of God's grace. Because God interrupts Mary's life with an invasion Of God's graceless work in her life. Now, uh, you with me so far? Now, if you've noticed throughout this text, there's been one behold word. Have you seen it? We're about to be given a second behold word, and I'll tell you why that matters in just a minute. But the second behold word is about to invite us because all of this conversation between angel and Mary is very personal language, isn't it? It's very subjective, personal experience. I'm about to experience uh, conception in my womb having never known a man. God's about to show up you know, through me and God using my body and to bring forth the Messiah and the Christ. This kid who is going to be holy throughout all of his days and I'm going to watch him be born, watch him grow up, watch his ministry, watch his crucifixion. I'm going to be there at the empty tomb at the end and what happens here as Mary asks this question is just incredible to me it's so kind of God because the second behold that Gabriel is about to give is to take her out of her own personal subjective experience and give her an objective reality outside of her to remind her that God doesn't just work with her alone but God is about to give her a friend isn't that good news Isn't that awesome? You're about to experience the single greatest miracle in the history of the Bible. It's the best trump card ever. Are you pregnant? Yeah. Who'd you have? This little sinful person. Who'd you have? The Messiah. (laughs) You ever have one of those? Nope. Just me. And here Mary is at the front end of this story. Watch this. Who's ahead of her just six months? Elizabeth. Who's experiencing something for the first time that she's never experienced before? Elizabeth. You ever see women get together who are pregnant and talk about being pregnant? See, guys, do you understand this? You got no idea what this is like. We often, we've had, we've had six kids and so often young ladies will come to my wife and talk about the pregnancy season, Right? That they'll they'll talk about, what am I going to experience? What is this going to be like? And here's Elizabeth, significantly older. You ever been pregnant before? I've never been pregnant before. How'd you get pregnant? God said, you're kidding me. God told me too. Yeah, isn't that incredible? What's it like? I don't know. I've never experienced it before. It's my first time. How about you? My first time too. Isn't that incredible? How kind God is. Verse 36, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. God gives Mary a miracle outside of her personal experience. Mary would know. She's old. They've never had a kid. It's always been Zechariah and Elizabeth. And you're telling me she's how far along? She's six months pregnant. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. Where did Gabriel just point Mary's mind? To the impossible. Mary, you're about to experience the conception of the Son of God. And I'm going to give you an objective uh, illustration of my faithfulness and power, not in your life, but in somebody else's life. You're going to have somebody six months ahead of you in the journey. You're going to have someone who's experiencing this for the first time, just like you. You're going to have someone who can hold your hand and talk you through the morning sickness and the kicking and the feeling and the newness and all of the uncertainty. Now watch this. There's something important here that you're going to see about Mary. Because we've had two beholds Right? You with me? The first behold, let's go back and look at the text together. Look at, uh, you see where the first behold is, verse 31, right? Verse 31, behold, you will conceive in your womb. Here's a miracle. Now, uh, move down, verse 36. There's your second behold. What's the second behold tell us? The second behold is evidence. An illustration, an objective reality that is outside your own personal thinking and feeling and experience. That second behold tells us that God is doing powerful things outside of you with other people. I'm going to give you a buddy in this journey. But the third behold is really important because the third behold has nothing to do with God's power. It has nothing to do with what God has done. It has nothing to do with the conception whatsoever. The third behold comes out of the mouth of Mary. And the third behold really isn't for anybody else other than those who read this story. Because in the third behold, we don't learn about the incarnation. We don't learn about God's power. What we learn is something about Mary. Because what comes out of her mouth tells us what is happening inside of her. Whereas what comes out of Gabriel's mouth tells us what God is like. This, final behold, tells us what Mary is like. She's only spoken once in this entire paragraph. And when you read this story, this is really, in terms of an experience, the most unrepeatable and unrelatable experience ever, isn't it? There's nobody else who's going to say, maybe beyond Elizabeth, who can say, I get it. So what I want, just for our last few minutes, I want you to look here at the story and the person of Mary. Because this is where I think for all of us, we're going to have to grapple with the divine interruptions in our life. Verse 36, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Which means in the midst of the most unrepeatable and unrelatable and single greatest miracle of the entire Bible, Mary's posture, Mary tells us something about how she views herself in relationship to God. You see that? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. You know why you get bothered with interruptions? Because here's why, here's why, maybe it's just me. You guys can counsel me. When I get bothered with interruptions, I believe that the world ought to serve me. I believe that God's providence ought to be for me. I believe that the interruptions in my life get in the way of me wanting to accomplish all that me wants to accomplish for me. And Mary gives us something where she invites us into this inner dialogue that's been going on in her heart, into this internal processor for us to see something about Mary that we wouldn't know up to this point. Because you don't know what's happening in her heart as she hears this message. And Gabriel speaks to her. And God fulfills his promises from 2 Samuel chapter 7 until she opens her mouth and she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Which means, how do I view God? God is not my accountant God is not my therapist God is not my great encourager God is my master Mary's posture in the midst of the greatest gracious invasion interruption ever in all of the Bible is to say I am the servant he is the master now that's great to say right We all believe we ought to be servants of God. We all ought to follow him. And we all recognize the tension that happens in our life. And we face divine interruptions, don't we? Because it's one thing for me to to journey through life when there's relative consistency between my prayers and my plans, right? When we go, I prayed for that and that happened and that was good. I like the way God leads, But it's another thing altogether to get our plans and anticipation and our expectations interrupted by God and for us to go, that wasn't what I prayed for. That's not something I asked for. I wasn't expecting that. And now God has divinely interrupted me. So the question becomes, now how do I know if I'm in that place? If right now in my relationship with God, I'm wondering, would I respond the same way that Mary does to, to Gabriel? How do I know? How would I discover that temptation and tension in my heart? And it really comes in the second part of what she says. See, it's one thing to say, I serve the Lord. But it's another thing to understand what she says in the next part Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. How do I know if God is my master and I am his servant? The question and the answer, I think have to do with what we're willing to experience for the cost of obedience. What did God take away from Elizabeth after decades of barrenness, do you remember? Behold he has taken away my reproach. So here's Elizabeth for decades experiencing the embarrassment and the shame of not being able to provide a son. decades of asking and hearing no. Decades of praying and hearing no. And now she's about to have an encounter with this young teenage woman named Mary. Do you know what's ahead for Mary? Do you know Jesus is called, um, he's accused of being brought forth in fornication. All of a sudden people are going to start watching and wondering, it sure didn't line up This pregnancy with the time that you said you were getting married. And here's Elizabeth, decades ahead, experiencing the hand of God in her life, going, Mary, I know what it means to walk through the stigma. I know what it means to feel ashamed. And I'm going to take you by the hand, and we're going to go through this together because we have evidence of God's gracious hand toward us and God doing something that maybe people won't understand but is actually evidence of God's grace and favor upon our lives. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? So how do I know? Do you notice what is not in Mary's statement here? Mary's statement includes no words connected to the word if, does it? God, I'll follow you, and I'll submit, and I'll allow all of the consequences of what it means to follow you as long as I get my plans fulfilled as long as my career goes the way I want it to as long as you give me what I want see it's one thing to look at these two ladies side by side and to allow the word of God to interpret our past right because Elizabeth is now looking at the fulfillment of all of God's promises coming to fruition in her unanswered prayers. And she looks back and she goes, I see what God has done. But it's another thing to let God's word have sway over your future, isn't it? Does Mary know what she's going to experience in her culture? Does she know all of what it means to cost her? Does she know that she's going to be on the run for her life from a wicked, maniacal king? Does she know the questioning that she's going to have to experience? Does she know what her son is going to go through to come into this world and die for sinners? Imagine the profound courage of this young lady. Who right at the beginning says, I am the servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I will receive all of the consequences of being faithful to obey what God wants me to do. See, that's how you know that you are serving the Lord. That when divine interruptions come, your posture in your heart becomes, let it be to me according to your word. Let me be the woman or man that you want me to be. Let me submit to your plans, your will, your desire, your divine interruptions in my life. God, do all that you want to do with me through the course of this experience. And that's what Mary says. So you can see why she's a contrast to Zechariah, don't you? You see why Zechariah says, yeah, but how, Gabe? And Mary, by the end, her posture is faith. How much does she know about God? About as much as a teenager would know about God. How much does she know about what she's about to experience of the single greatest New Testament miracle ever? Not a lot. What's it going to cost her? A lot. And she's going to walk with God throughout the whole course of the story. See, what if we viewed God's interruptions as evidence of God's grace toward us? What if when life happened to us, we began to ask different questions other than grumpy ones? What if we began to put ourselves in the posture that Mary does? Because none of us in here are going to experience the incarnation of the Son of God in our life through the virgin birth, right? But we're all going to have divine interruptions where God brings situations and seasons into our life that we don't understand, that don't make sense to us. And what if our posture as a church came back to how we understood our relationship with God, saying, God, I'm the servant. You're the master. Would you lead and direct my life according to your word, not according to my plans? And all throughout both of these stories, both in Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary's life, have you noticed how joyful Gabriel is? Do you notice how much evidence of God's grace is a part of this? It's all God's divine, gracious interruption of their lives to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the earth. Isn't that awesome? What a beautiful picture and story. So my hope for us as we go into the Christmas season is that we would have the posture of Mary. That we would say, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. God, would you interpret our past and God, would you give us grace to understand how to follow you into the future? Father, we pause and pray and are amazed at the courage and the faithfulness of this teenager. We ask, Father, for the situations in our life and in our world that uh, don't make sense right now, that we would depend and rest upon your word and the fact that you are gracious toward those who do not deserve your grace. Father, for us, that we would begin, even in this Christmas season, to meditate on your gracious initiative toward us by sending us your son to die on the cross for sinners. That as we sing the songs of Christmas time and we remember the example of the Virgin Mary, that we would be men and women who present to you hearts of faith that understand that we are servants of the Lord and that may it be done to us according to your word. Would we lean forward into the divine interruptions? Would we understand that you are a gracious God and you interrupt our lives with things that are ultimately good for us and good for others and give us the opportunity to speak of your kindness and your initiative and your goodness toward us? Most of all, we give thanks for Jesus Christ, that you would love us and be gracious toward us by sending your son to die, to come near to us, to walk with us, to experience what we do, and ultimately to give his life that we may live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.